Hello and welcome to another episode of Planning People, the NMA podcast. I'm Ollie Smith and this week I'm joined by a man from the land down under. Paul Resnick is co-founder and director of Plan Plus Global and also the convener, convener of the Financial Suitability Forum, which is what we're here to talk about today. We're here to discuss the thorny issue of suitability, including the old capacity for loss agenda, which has caused a bit of a ruckus in recent weeks on NMA. Paul, welcome. Good to have you here. How are you today? Good day, mate. I am cool. Oh, crack, crack. Too easy, too easy. Um, excellent. Uh, as your Lancat buddies should have informed you, uh, and I hope this does have a reputation uh, beyond the four walls of this office now, there is a task for you to do today, which is the weekly rock hard quiz. I'm looking forward to the challenge. Are you excited? I am particularly excited. You should be, because with the word suitability lingering in your eardrums, this week's quiz is all about suits. I have one in the cupboard. It hasn't seen the light of day for some time. I was going to say, Paul, you are exceptionally casually quaffed, but that's a good thing because we like our guests to be relaxed. Um, I have five questions for you really quick. Uh, let's see how you do. Um, Paul, question one. Have you seen the new film Rocket Man? That's not a question, but have you seen it? I have to tell you, it is not on my list. Okay, well, it's all about Elton John and Elton John's journey up the superstardom ladder. Uh, Elton John was and is obviously quite the connoisseur when it comes to flamboyant clothing, shall we say. Uh, and in 2002, he held a pop-up shop selling some of his own clothes from years gone by, raising money for, for his own AIDS foundation. 15,000 items were sold, but Paul, how much money do you think it raised? I think it raised 1.57 million. Uh, lower, actually. Would you like to have another go? It's actually 1.02 million. It's actually 400,000 pounds, which perhaps seems a bit modest in comparison to your suggestion, but um, 400,000 pounds is still a lot of money. Elton is a real philanthropist and has been using that kind of format for many years as a means of raising money for causes close to his heart. So that's that. Question two, uh, we all know that Meghan Markle got her big break as an actress in the US series Suits, which saw her play a lawyer in a fast-paced legal firm. But what kind of suit was her husband, Harry, wearing when she married him last year? A birthday suit. <laughs> I'm sure at one point he probably was, uh, but he started the day in military attire. Uh, and as I, I read online, uh, the prince kept it dark and traditional for his, for his big day, opting for a blue doe-skin frock coat, white gloves and black trousers with the red piping, and the badge of the Blues and Royals Regiment, of which Her Majesty lives as Colonel-in-Chief. As one does in downtown Elstonwick, where I hang around in southern Melbourne. Really? Oh, absolutely. Every day I'm dressed in a doe. I'm afraid I've <laughs> forgotten the full distinction. Oh, I've seen straight through you, Paul. But surely it's not true. Surely you're just dressed casually. I am, um, I have to tell you, dressed in shorts and a T-shirt. Well, quite right, too. It's bloody boiling down there. Um, question three. We all know that buying suits can be pretty expensive. Uh, but just how expensive was the most expensive suit in the world ever? Was it A, £692,500, B, £792,500, or C, £892,500? I would think the upper limit, £892,000. That's correct. It's the last one. Very well done. Uh, designer Stuart Hughes' Diamond Edition suit took more than 800 hours to design and stitch and was made of wool, cashmere and silk. There were only three of the suit produced in the world. I don't have a picture of it, obviously, as this is a podcast, but I can assure you that this thing is absolutely a thing of utter horseshit. I look forward <laughs> to seeing a picture. Does it look it's, really bad? It's genuinely 
awful. Uh, moving swiftly on, uh, question four. According to men's outfitter, Jack Bunnies, are double-breasted waistcoats in or out this season when it comes to weddings? They are definitively in. They are in. How did you know that? Have you I am recently? inspired. I got married once. Okay, okay. But did you wear a double-breasted waistcoat? As it happens, I didn't. Oh, okay. Well, according to the business, wedding waistcoats in double-breasted formats have become the waistcoats in 2019 because David Beckham wore a classical dove grey double-breasted waistcoat for the royal wedding in 2018, the aforementioned royal wedding between Meghan and Harry. Uh, no doubt that wonderful example of timeless style has had an impact on trends in 2019. Even in downtown Elston. Even, even in Melbourne. Melbourne. <laughs> and finally, Paul, question five. Why is it that men's suits are tailored to allow their shirt cuffs to be longer than their suit sleeves? I think to stop men wiping their noses on their, on their blazers, which are much more expensive to dry clean than a shirt that can be laundered. Pretty much. Uh, it's to stop fraying, but for the same reason. Uh, a very simple answer, really. In the olden days, everybody knew it was easier to replace a shirt than it was a suit jacket. So the shirt sleeves are longer on the shirt, uh, so that if any fraying occurs or anything else, I might add, it does so on a garment that is easily, easily fixable or replaceable. What an inspirational yeah. development. How sensible is that? Well, it sounds very Australian. So sensible. Um, so, Paul, thank you so much for humouring me. Um, well, I didn't know I was one. going to be subject to this, but thank you for the experience. See, some people don't, but the more we do it, the more it gains notoriety. Truly do. Um, and speaking of notoriety, um, you've made a reputation in the financial services for talking about all things platform suitability regulation. And um, we are here to discuss suitability. So I think we should begin with some very sexy regulation in the COBS uh, bit of the handbook, uh, the FCA handbook. It's section 9.2. And for readers at home, the FCA says that a firm must A, take reasonable steps to ensure that a personal recommendation or a decision to trade is suitable for its client, and B, ensure that any life policy proposes consistent with the client's insurance demands and needs. Secondly, Cobb says that when making the personal recommendation or managing clients' investments, the firm must obtain uh, the necessary information regarding the client's A, knowledge and experience in the investment field relevant to the specific type of the designated investment or service, B, financial situation, and C, investment objectives, so as to enable the firm to make the recommendation or take the decision which is suitable for the client and for the life policy to propose a contract that is consistent with the client's insurance demands. Now, Paul, quite apart from that displaying uh, the fact that the FCA is full of lawyers. Um, my first question for you is this tricky one. Is the FCA barking up the correct tree on suitability, do you think? Because well, advisors are, um, are in, you know, advisors are about split. It. Uh, let's go back to the, uh, the intent of getting advice in the first place. Sure. And we could take the view that an advisor provides a service to say to the client, I can help give you a level of certainty that there will be assets available to meet your personal liabilities mm. as they fall due. Mm. I will do that through recommendations of appropriate insurance if there is an insurable activity that can be protected. Mm. And I will do so by recommending a savings and spending pattern. And if there is something in the middle of that, which is an investment, an appropriate exposure to risky assets so that you can have a reasonable certainty of the portfolio being available either to generate income or to be um, 
to be reduced by selling assets to meet those liabilities in a meaningful and, mm. and uh, reasonable manner. Mm. Um, it's What I'm getting from that is that it's all so well-intentioned. Uh, would you say, I know that you said advisors are split, I think we agree on that. Would you say the majority are in favour of the scrutiny on suitability or would you say the majority are against it? Uh, I think part of the problem is that we refuse to agree a set of terms and their meaning. So I mm. think this is a, as much a language issue yeah, as semantics. anything else. So semantics. So as an example, a couple of years ago we published a lexicon of risk terms. Mm thinking that the industry might be interested in standardising By we, do you mean? We being finometrical at that stage. So it was a project that I did with a guy called Stuart Erskine mm -hmm. here in the UK. So we spent a year researching, mm -hmm. saying this is our contribution to the community. We think there would be a value mm -hmm. in at least if an organisation, a firm or a, an investment house, agreed how the risk, what the risk terms meant, mm -hmm. both speaking to themselves and speaking to their clients, typically they may communicate with a client several times during the year. Wouldn't it be good if the word risk profile, risk tolerance, risk capacity was agreed at least within the firm mm. to be treated consistently? Much to my surprise, I could not encourage anybody in the industry to take this as a serious activity and really? hence we have ongoing debates about the meaning of language, mm. which miss the point. And I think this capacity for loss, loss capacity, is one of those. We're, in Australia, we call this a furphy. Clearly, the goal is to help clients understand that things can go wrong mm. and to prepare them for that. And that's what capacity for loss. If you're looking at a portfolio, you have to be able to illustrate to the client there can be a time when the asset values diminish, it may be for an extended period of time, and we need to be able to illustrate that if you continue spending the way you are, you will or you will not diminish the value of the assets, such as when the recovery happens, as it invariably has over the last 100 years, you won't have sufficient assets to meet your long-term mm. spending. And that's in practical terms, what capacity for loss or loss capacity mm. is about. Sometimes the assets will be lost entirely, sometimes they'll be volatile. Sometimes you'll need to sell them down because the natural income won't meet your needs. That's what we're illustrating when we talk about capacity for loss. It's a fundamental obligation of common sense mm. covered by ambiguity of language. Mm. Um, we will come on to a few more specifics on capacity for loss in just a moment. But I wanted to ask you about the prod rules, the product governance rules, because our friends at the Landcap found that a lot of advisors were not really aware they even existed. And actually, for my part, when I was at an event a few weeks ago in Bournemouth, this was like a PFS regional event, lots of great advisors in the room. It was a bit of an elephant in the room that most of them put their hands up to say that they wouldn't uh, really say that they were entirely compliant. Um, though, of course, the intention and the processes within their firm were probably really, really good. Is is the tacit implication of advisors saying that, that prod is bad? I mean, is that a piece of regulation that is bad insofar as advisors haven't engaged with it because they just haven't known about it? Does that render it already sort of redundant? No, it just renders that advisors are very tired of new regulation. 
So here is the cynical Australian view. Mm-hmm. We only get the regulation we deserve. Mm. The dilemma in life is uh, <laughs> that regulation comes with momentum. You put 15 regulators in a room and say, tidy this up. After they've tidied one component up, they go, what else can we do? Yeah. And like a pendulum, it goes faster and faster. Yeah. What you can see in the prod rules and the senior manager regime coming through is a continuation of a major shift in regulation. And it has two parts. Part one is mere disclosure was not sufficient. Mm. Why? Most of our clients are barely literate, hardly numerate, and they can't make an informed decision from all of the, uh, the detail that's been illustrated. Mm. The second is that we have a shift underway, and it's a fundamental shift in capitalism. Capitalism started off by saying, I have knowledge and you will buy my knowledge. The asymmetry of knowledge, that's what you pay for. It was protected by a notion of caveat emptor, Mm. buyer beware. Now the knowledge is now much more available in the marketplace. It's not that anybody can necessarily or everybody can interpret it, but the major shift is from buyer beware to seller. Yeah, vendor. Vendor beware. Now, this is a pendulum. So we're moving from, it was okay, disclosure protected us, to, oh, shit, I've got liabilities, and the liabilities are everywhere. Why? There are many lawyers looking for things to do, and as one of my colleagues would say, um, if they can't throw one book up you, that is MIFID, they'll throw another book, senior manager's regime, and but you don't get caught with those two, you'll be caught by prod. Mm. The best way to look at the regulation is what is its intent? Mm. Target the big picture, which is you want the client's informed consent to the risks they're taking on. The, The critical issue isn't to get informed consent, it is that it is capable of being given because the relevant transparencies are in place. Advisors are overwhelmed by regulation, but the regulation just follows mm. a momentum, and it's about meaningful disclosure and the capacity for informed consent. Mm. Um, let's just look at that capacity for loss topic again, because an IFA you may be familiar with, Nick Lincoln, uh, recently wrote a, a great piece for us, a sort of colourfully written uh, article in which he argued that the FCA's emphasis on assessing capacity for loss uh, was, in his own words, morally bankrupt uh, and, and was actually a cul-de-sac. It, he described it as a, as a distraction almost from the, the true issue, in his opinion, which is all to do with inflation and inflation eating away at, at clients' money. And um, I just wondered to what extent you agreed with him on that, because as I said at the beginning, uh, it's very clear that that regulation is very well intentioned. When Jackie Lockie, the head of financial planning at CISI, wrote her article about it, you, know, you can tell a lot of thoughts gone into that. So why is it, therefore, that Nick Lincoln is saying that it is morally bankrupt? Um, I have to say, I don't know Nick. Mm. I, I read the article. I don't know him that well at all. And, um, uh, and perhaps it's, you know, as an advisor, he's, he's reading this too closely. I go back to what's the intent. Mm. 
I need, when I construct a portfolio for a client, to give them a sense of confidence mm. that their portfolio will meet their needs. Inflation is one of their needs. In the modelling that you do, mm. you need to take that into account. So in my recent series of workshops um, for the Suitability Forum, we brought in a scenario-testing macroeconomist. Now, having said that and blustered him and got tongue-tied, what he showed was that it's an obligation to show with the portfolio you've got what would be the consequences, short, medium and long-term, of shocks. Mm. Now, one of them might be inflation moves by 1% or 2% higher than we would expect. Now, yeah. I looked over the last 50 years, inflation in the UK is 6%. Mm. Over the last 10 years, do you know what the number is? So say that again, in the last five... 50 years, in the last 50, 6%, 6%. In the last 10, 10 years, years, what are they? One? Three. Three. Now, if you do your modelling on the longer term, 50 years, it's six. If you do it modelling on the last 10 years, three. Which one should you do your modelling going forward? Oh, gosh. Is this a quiz for me now? I mean, Well, it is only revenge. The, long, the longer term? Well, yes, now. So we now have a, a view of history. Yeah. So this goes to the very core of ongoing advice. Mm. You construct portfolios and a service which enable you to not make too many big bets on the short term. A review mm. says, let's see where the trend is. Where are we looking? Let us test for changes. What happens if oil price goes back to $100 a barrel? What happens if interest rates drop another half percent? That's what we do. Um, now, we don't do it very well. We tend to use back history to get a sense of it. But if you look at a major trend that you'll see in the US, but not here, it is macroeconomic modelling on portfolios that will illustrate. And then you sit with a client and say, I've tested this. It seems like common sense that where we are, but if interest rates move up, maybe we'll need to either ameliorate your spending, mm. look to see if you've got other assets to bring into play, Mm. I'd hate to think we need to change the portfolio because we would hope that the portfolio we have given you in broad terms will be consistent with your risk tolerance. Mm. We know from our feedback that in the longer term for many people, if their portfolio is consistent with their risk tolerance or takes it reasonably into account, they tend not to chase the market when it booms because... They, they're more comfortable where they are, and they tend not to exit the market when it corrects. Both of those are utterly predictable. Mm. They will happen, and give or take every 10 years that does happen. It is the change of portfolios that damage the likelihood of outcome much more, much more significantly than whether inflation has gone from 2% to 3 It might be from 3 to 6 it's significant. If you're doing a regular review, you should be on top of that discussion. And that's what the value of the regular review is, mm. is looking at what could go wrong, are we prepared, have we tested the portfolio going forward. So I see that as a significant improvement. Yeah. And that tests risk capacity or capacity for loss um, in a 
scientifically and evidence-based way that adds value to the client's decisions. And it, obviously this will be somewhat dependent on the uh, whims of the advisor and indeed the whims of the client, but in the current environment, does it surprise you to hear about advisors doing those reviews once a year? Is that enough? Or I'm always reminded of the question that I think it was to Ho Chi Minh, what do you think of the, uh, of the um, French Revolution of 1792 mm. and the answer. I'm not quite clear yet because we haven't seen the full outplaying of its consequences. Mm. Um, I think there are, my sense is it is more important that we manage clients' behaviour mm. and give them confidence that they know where they're going mm. and they're comfortable with it than tinkering with portfolios. Tinkering now, when you start changing your capital market assumptions in your practice, as an example, to go with inflation, that may well have you reviewing all of your por historical portfolios and discovering that you're either over or underexposed. And therefore, you have to move all of your clients. Mm. Now, getting your capital market assumptions reasonable in the first place protects you and the business from a huge amount of turmoil. As I can't find very much evidence that people are good at consistently picking market inclines and declines mm. to fine tune. So part of being very considered is to have taken a long-term view, be conscious of short-term biases, recency biases, and manage them very carefully. I think advisors are in the spotlight as they ever were to be very conscious of the tools they use in their practice to frame clients' expectations and build portfolios. The FCA is very clear. Every tool you use, make sure you've done a due diligence, mm. my capital market assumptions and my... my uh, my um, my risks of market drops. Make sure you understand the risks. Make sure you understand that you have built in to your system ways of mitigating those weaknesses and risks. There's your obligation and it applies across your cash flow modeling, your asset allocation, your capital market assumptions, and it is merely the recommendation Mm. legally to do what you should be doing professionally. Sure. Uh, let's talk about risk questionnaires. I've got a couple of questions about risk questionnaires because this is an area I actually have some experience in, albeit a small amount. Um, I've completed a risk questionnaire and I came out as a, quote, balanced investor, um, which is nothing to be ashamed of. Uh, I felt it adequately reflected my instinct, shall we say, regarding money. You know, I like a little bit of risk, but I'm also, you know, I like a little bit of uh, security as well. Um, I had this feeling that the the one that I did with my financial planner seemed to suggest something I felt was quite accurate about me, but it struck me as quite interesting that the questionnaire seemed to be the same questionnaire as the one that a client perhaps with far, far more experience investing than me would do. Um, and I questioned whether that was right, because I saw this scenario in my head. What about, you know, first-time investors um, displaying a little bit more risk aversion than perhaps more experienced investors would show. 
perhaps a bit of discomfort. And, and then contrast that with investors with a lot more experience who may, who may actually be even more risk averse on the scale. Um, is, it, is it correct that clients should be given one, uh, you know, every client gets given the same uh, risk assessment? Um, in my experience and reflection, I think you could find a way through this mm. chicane, and it goes like this. Um, risk tolerance is a psychological personality piece. Yes, this is the difference between an emotional and an actual yeah. physical assets-based yeah. approach, right? And so we, when we started looking at this 20-odd years ago, we looked at all of the possible tools that were available. And we decided psychometrics was a good way of measuring that, and the data subsequently has reinforced it. Risk tolerance is personality, and as we know, personality can change, mm. but it tends not to. So it gives you a foundation. That's why you retest to see, if, did it actually change? But as we talk to, uh, to our advisor clients, and we've got about 1.4 million on file of tests plus several thousand advisors. What we discovered, tests, retests are reasonably consistent, but sometimes it changes because the clients had a significant change. The other components that go towards a recommendation are the risks a client needs to take to achieve their goals, mm. the portfolio they could afford to take, which takes us back to risk capacity, there may be a gap, mm. the time horizon, which is the practical issue of just easing through the market volatilities that we've seen historically, their knowledge, their experience of investment, and what did they do last time the markets were volatile? Did they chase? Mm. Now, those are seven characteristics that we believe many advisors consciously or semi-consciously balance off when they make go to a recommendation. Mm. Under the regulatory environment we've got, you have to evidence that. Yes. And that's where this big play comes out. Well, this is a large algorithm. I can tell you that in this recent workshop tour, I was testing, is there any consistency of which of those seven is number one, two, three, and four in the way advisors weighted? Mm. So I had a group in London, which I calculated as 50 people with about 20 years experience in the industry. There's a thousand years of experience. And I gave them a very simple case study and said, here are the seven variables. I think this is, are you, are you comfortable with me that these are the major ones? Will you prioritize them one to seven and share what you've just done with the person sitting either side of you? And there was this silence and then people started laughing. Mm. You know that embarrassed laugh when they discovered the, yes. their own biases yeah. had the whole table. And sometimes there were people who were working in the same business and sometimes they were in different businesses. There was no consistency. So to answer your question, these are the biases that have been undisclosed mm. up until now. What you're obliged to do in your business, I would argue, is to make sure that those biases are transparent and you've talked it through, that not necessarily that every client will get the same advice, but you as a firm know 
what the relevant weightings were. Some people say, I will hold them true to meeting their needs. Mm. Others will take the argument that I've come from, which is I don't want them too far away from their risk tolerance and I will help them modify their needs so they don't break from their portfolio. And others will look to say, well, what happens in the worst case? Do I have to buy an annuity mm. to make sure they've got fundamental? Or can I model that that will be sufficiently there? I don't think there's a right answer. There is an evidenced answer that meets the, the biases in turn of the client. That's what suitability is. It's not mechanical, but it is driven by logic and experience. And we call that professional judgment. Mm. Um, interesting to hear you mention the word annuity there, because obviously annuities were sort of wiped out uh, in a kind of in a popular way, shall we say, uh, by the pension freedoms in this country. Uh, George Osborne famously said, budget 2014, no one will have to buy an annuity. Um, one of the biggest, and I think still under kind of covered issues in the uh, investment pension space right now is the impact of that policy. Um, we don't seem, as journalists, or speaking as a journalist, to have been too inundated yet with too much scandal surrounding drawdown and drawdown and the effect of with withdrawing money incrementally while a pot is still invested. Um, but I wonder whether that's more to do with the, you know, the bull run and, um, and I wonder whether that could, that could be about to change. Um, are we about to see a sort of suitability uh, scrutiny of drawdown uh, come back to the fore, do you think, in, you know, in the next year or so? Perhaps as people realise that in less favourable investment climates that drawdown may not have been the most suitable uh, product or uh, strategy for them? I think the answer is if, if you haven't constructed an argument that was capable of informed consent, mm. that is, it was opaque and it didn't look at, yeah. you, know, you didn't test the black swan events and the bottom 5% of, the, uh, yes. of, um, of likely outcomes, um, and, you, and the classic would be, We've resolved that we took a lump sum and 8% per annum of the value or of the initial value is going to come out. You can pretty rapidly model that you'll run out of money after seven years. Now, um, what, are, what are you expecting for it not to run out in eight years? Well, there was a likely of a market boom of 15% per annum equity returns for seven years. Well, you're going to stand on your head. You'll have no meaningful evidence for any of that argument. Mm. The regulation is following, I would argue, common sense, a little bit behind. You explore those and you explain it and there's your evidence. You're caught for negligence and stupidity. You're protected by having a basis for the recommendation yeah. and doing the best you can to get your clients informed consent. When you are an advisor and you're working effectively on a fiduciary basis, mm. it's your obligation to be thinking on behalf of the client. And if the numbers don't match up, so if you're not doing some level of long-term cash flow planning, if you're not doing Monte Carlo modelling, you are going to be vulnerable. Mm. If you say, I don't understand it, time to go back to class yes get more qualifications get learn I, i'm not a huge enthusiast for simple i did a degree in it 
learn about it. And if you're not capable of learning, bugger off. Stop messing it up for other people. Mm. A punchy message. Um, and an, another good segue, punchy messages. Uh, the Australian Royal Commission on Banking and Finance was well, full of punchy messages. I have to say, this was one of the great show trials of our time. <laughs> after, after Stalin's great uh, exposures in the 30s and 40s, it was quite wonderful. Some of my best friends were on stage. Really? Really? And how come they didn't come for you, Paul? I was in the UK. You've been photoshopped out and all. Uh, completely, yes. I was obliterated. Sure, sure. Um, the report that was that uh, was published from that uh, inquest, I mean, it was damning. I mean, it was really damning, wasn't it? Um, what lessons do you think we can learn from Australia on suitability, particularly where pension freedoms are concerned, perhaps, but more more generally? Um, so this was a royal commission to the behaviour of the banks. Yes. The banks owned a good chunk of financial planning businesses, platforms, life insurance companies, asset management. They were vertically integrated behemoths. Mm. What did we learn? Ostensibly, the banks were very good at raising ongoing service fees against the portfolios in their platforms, mm. but had no record of whether that service had been provided. Sounds basic, doesn't it? Hmm. Uh, and they and the questioning was, did you ever think that you should follow that around? And the answer was, no. No. That's not the way it was contracted. Yes. So what the, what the uh, what the Royal Commission disclosed was the fees were just charged. Mm. They never explored suitability mm. at all. There was no engagement to say, well, what was the ongoing yeah. Advice because suitability is the transaction. Yes, but you're charging one percent per annum, and it was well you charge you're charging one percent. Show us, did you have any records at all? And nobody was able to turn around and say, "Yep, that's what these people did." So this is like PPI here in the UK. Mm. The first view of what the compensation would look like was. One billion. Tip of the iceberg. Two billion, three, three billion, billion, four, four billion. billion, five billion, six billion. Like just like here in two thousand eleven when we started seeing the regulation tightening, mm. the banks said our reputation has been sullied. We're off. They're closing their wealth management, taking selling their advisory businesses, selling their platforms, selling their life companies. Mm. They are distancing themselves as fast as possible because not only has the damage to their reputation but to their balance sheets. Mm. Back to show trial, lo and behold, after all of this, the share prices are now going up mm. for the banks. And we have a burgeoning independent marketplace of advisors appearing. But to give you the most vivid example of accountability, one of our largest planning groups, in fact, it was the largest planning group, was actually an old mutual life company which had demutualized called AMP. And some of our listeners today will remember them. They bought some businesses here about 10 years ago. Mm. AMP share price at one stage was close to $24. When I last looked, it was two. Over the last year, the share price has dropped from 540 to 2. The CEO has gone, an Englishman who was brought across to, uh, to manage the process. 
The chairman went, three directors went. There are five class action um, legal firms looking to sue the current board. And they have sold their core asset, the life insurance company that they started in 1848, from wow. memory, as they try and... Mm, produce some level of um, redress. Well, some level of humility and continuation. One of the lines my friend Stuart gave me when we were doing some work that goes to this. To be trusted, you have to behave in a trustworthy manner. While this is a circular argument, mm. it goes to the very core of our of what we need to do. You only get trust now, not assumed because you have authority. I think all of that has been blown apart yeah. over the last 20 years. You are trusted now because of the way you behave. Yes. And the regulation is just an underpinning. Everything you should do, I would argue, you should look to see, is it possible for a smart client to make an informed decision of what we've given them? Mm. Therefore, I need to show them how bad things can be. No client should be surprised by what happened. They're certainly allowed to be disappointed. Yes. There are always market drops. Sometimes they're precipitous. Mm. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes the recovery is three months. Sometimes it's five years. I don't know. You don't know. We've modelled it. We've looked at your spending. We've talked about how you can modify behaviour. Yes, you spend less. You don't do the whole You don't buy your ice creams. You, you go for holidays in, where was I? Bournemouth the other day. Beautiful place. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Did you go for fish and chips at Harry's? I did not. I was oh. told the fish and chips were very good until the business was bought out by somebody else. Now the fish and chips aren't as good as they oh, once were. No. Um, back to promise. Back, back to, to promise. brand. <laughs> so to, to sort of summarise, um, the opportunity has never been better. The Royal Commission in Oz has basically said if you charge an ongoing service fee, make sure you provide a service. What the regulator here has been arguing for years is exactly the same. What is that service? It's saying, this is your plan. Shall we review the goal? Shall we review the behaviour, the behaviour of markets? What's that worth? Whatever you can charge for it. Mm. Too easy. It's too easy, Mike. Too easy, Mike. Um, Paul, great stuff. Um, Thank you for that, and a huge thank you for coming in. It's been great to have you at CityWire again. It must have been over a year. Um, if you, like Nick Lincoln and or Paul, have any controversial or not so controversial views on suitability that you would like to share with us and possibly have published, I might add, we would be pleased to hear from you. So please do get in touch by email at news at cityware.co.uk and make yourselves heard. The only thing that remains to be said is that if you like this podcast, then please do go to iTunes and subscribe and leave us a lovely review if you like what you hear. Tune in again for more next time, possibly about vertical integration, banks and crises. Um, but until then, until that's decided, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from Paul. G'day.